0: As you know, we've been going through the book of James, a very practical book, a book that emphasizes if we have a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we expect to see a changed life. We expect to see good works. We expect to see a devotion to Christ. Well, we've come to chapter 4 of James. it presents quite a difficult situation. First six verses. Where do wars and fightings come from among you? Don't they come from here, even from your lusts, your desires, which war in your members? You lust and you don't have. You kill and I checked the Greek on that, that's that's a good translation, and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not, because you don't ask. You do ask and you don't receive, because you ask amiss, so that you may consume it on your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. One of the things that's emphasized is humility. Now, if you go back to Proverbs chapter 3, you'll find in verse 34 what we just pretty well read here what's being referred to. Surely he scorns the scorners, but he gives grace to the lowly. Pride, of course, is a great sin. And the first song we sang indicated the conquest of pride. That was the devil's big sin, and it's something that we must fight against. Not to be proud people, but instead to be humble, to have a lowly heart. Jesus said he was lowly and he calls us to share in his lowliness and that he will help us as we carry on. But here in this passage, these first six verses, we see some very serious things, don't we? Talks about murder, talks about jealousy, talks about infighting, as it were, especially later on. Talks about the kind of situation we certainly don't want to have to experience. And it says, where does it arise? Where does it originate? It says it originates within ourselves. That reminds us what we learned back in chapter 1 of James Beginning in verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, his own selfish desires, we might say. Then when lust has conceived, it produces sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings out death. So the end of such conduct is very serious, is it not? And as I think about the serious problems, murder, we learn in First John 3:14 that actually to hate somebody is to murder that person. See, God sees things in the deepest, truest sense. And it talks about adulterers and adulteresses. And Jesus said that if you're married and you look at somebody else with lust, you're committing adultery. But I believe here it's also talking about spiritual adultery, where we are unfaithful to God. As we say, there's some very, very serious things here with jealousy and hatred and infighting. I think of another church in the New Testament which was experiencing factions and, and selfishness and things like that, and that's the church at Corinth, especially if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you see many problems that that church had. But the apostle didn't encourage, therefore, that people leave the church. What he did encourage was to reform the church, change the things that are wrong, come to things that are correct and right. It's also been suggested, and we can bear this in mind with next Sunday's message from James chapter five. It's been suggested that if wages are withheld from workers, wages is livelihood, and that also is a form of homicide. Well, God sees things, I think, quite differently than sometimes we do. And God came to heal and to help and bring peace and to be loved and to bring unity among his people. I believe our church here has a good love and a good unity together. We learn to work together and to love one another. I spoke about that. Matter a few weeks ago, as some of you will remember. But we have the thing of prayer here. Back in verse 2, you have not because you ask not. Think about that. Sometimes we tend to think everything is going to be as it's going to be, rather fatalistic and deterministic in approach. Que será, será. What will be, will be. Can't change anything. But is that what it says here? It says you don't have. Why? Because you don't ask. You mean that we could actually be missing some of God's things because we don't pray about it and ask God for it? Well, that's what it says. I believe it. So therefore, I think you believe it as well because it's in God's sacred book. The Holy Scriptures. You don't have because you don't ask. Something to act upon. Maybe there are things that we're missing out on because we haven't earnestly prayed and trusted God for those things. But then it goes on to say that you are asking, but you're asking amiss. (laughs) That you may consume it on your own desires. In other words, you're asking in a selfish way self-centered way some God times God may say no it's not good for you to have what you're asking for so evidently here that's what was happening you ask and you don't receive why because it's a selfish kind of prayer but on the other hand we're to pray about everything that is in an unselfish way in a trusting way in a way that knows that God knows best And so let's keep in mind, we don't have because we don't ask. Therefore, let's ask aright in good ways, according to God's will. That's the key thing. Ask according to God's will, then it says you'll receive. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes he may say no, because it's not for our best interests. At other times, I think he may say, wait, (laughs) wait. The timing isn't right. Later I can answer the prayer, but not right now. And so in this terrible situation, he gives them advice and direction, especially as we continue in a moment with verse 7. But what do you think about verse 5 here? Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us, lusts to envy, or lusts or desires enviously. Now, actually, this is a very difficult verse to understand because there are basically two interpretations. One of the interpretations is that we have a fallen nature. We're sinners by nature. If you go back to Genesis, you'll find that thought expressed chapter 6 of Genesis verse 5. Here's what it says. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Again in chapter 8 of Genesis verse 21, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor. The Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. So the first interpretation of James 4 verse 5 is that it's the spirit that it's talking about is referring to man's fallen spirit, our sin nature, as picked up there in those two verses from Genesis. The second interpretation is that it's talking about God's Holy Spirit. I notice in my King James Version, it has a small S. The interpreters apparently didn't look at it that way. But there are some versions, some translators, that actually put a capital S which in English, as you know, pretty well indicates deity, God. So some interpreters of the scripture actually believe it means it's talking about the spirit of God there. And in what sense do they think it's talking about the spirit of God? That he's a jealous God, that he doesn't tolerate us worshiping other gods and letting the world come before allegiance to him. Now, which of these interpretations is correct? Maybe when we go to heaven because of our faith in the Lord Jesus, we can ask him and find out. (laughs) Actually, we do know that we have fallen natures, and we're all sinners by nature. And we do know that God is jealous, as it were, in a good sense, and that, too, is for our benefit And he wants our full allegiance. He desires that. Let's go then to the second section here, beginning with verse 7. James 4, 7. Tells us what we ought to do about these difficult situations described here in the first six verses. First of all, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. And in verse 8, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw... Nigh or close to you. So let's actually read beginning at verse 7. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw close to God, and he will draw close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be afflicted and mourn and cry. Weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. Humble yourselves, there's humility emphasized, in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Don't speak evil one of another, brothers. He who speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you're a judge of the law, then... You're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you who judges another? So, the solution to all these problems is to submit to God, to resist the devil. How did Jesus resist when he was tempted? You remember? He kept quoting scripture, quoting from the Bible. That's a good way to resist the devil with the truth of God. It says if we resist him, he'll run away from us. tells us to draw an eye to God and he will come close to us. Cleanse your hands. Often the hands are used in performing sinful acts, things that are wrong. So the hands, what they do, need to be cleansed. But not just the hands... Purify your hearts, you double-minded. <coughs> Purify your hearts. Now, that's, that's a deeper thing. And the last song we sang dealt with that from the, from the inside out. You see, we need to be purified and cleansed deep within. We need a heart change. When we come to the old rugged cross, I love that first song that we sang, wasn't the old rugged cross, but it was about the cross, which is talking about Jesus and his atoning sacrifice for our sins. When we come to that, then we can become humble and begin to cleanse our ways and our heart. And then it talks about the double kind of a heart. Back in chapter 1 of James, we'd already encountered that in verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. How important it is that we not have a divided heart, as it were. We need to be uni- united and unified in our heart and in our faith and in our allegiance to God Almighty. That's extremely important. You know, Jesus dealt with that back in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, we find in chapter 6, where he talks about that. 6, beginning, verse 22. Here's what Jesus said. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is single, you see not divided, not a double heart. If your eye is single, your whole body shall be full of light. You see, if we're totally focused on the Lord and surrendered to Him, then we'll have God's light living in us, which again referring to the songs that mentioned how that goes on and on and on. But if your eye is evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. Therefore, the light that's in you, if it's that way, is darkness, and how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold on to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which can be translated riches or money. You can't do both. You can't be double-minded, double-hearted, and so part of the solution to be what we ought to be and to have unity and love is to have our hearts purified and to become single in its devotion, in our devotion to God. How important that is. Well, we talk about repentance here in verses 7 and 8, which we've already been talking about back in James 4, about submitting in our day and age, people don't like to submit, but it's important that we submit to God. It's important that we come close to God and that we have a change of heart. Going on then to the next section, chapter 4, beginning with verse uh, 14, 13, 413 of James. Go to now, modern way of saying come on you know when someone maybe isn't thinking right or doing right come on come on you that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain in other words we're going to go into such a place and we're going to stay there a while and we're going to make a killing financially we're going to have a great uh, amount of gain, of more money. But what does he say about that kind of attitude? Verse 14, whereas you don't know what shall be on the morrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Is that true? Well, you think about it, really, we don't. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. In fact, it says in Proverbs 27:1, boast not yourself of tomorrow, because you don't know what a day may produce. For what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. There's a lot in the Bible about the shortness of life. Years ago someone wrote a little poem called The Dash. on our trip, somebody was telling us about it. And in fact, we heard it like a couple of times. Maybe you've heard that poem. You ever been to a cemetery and there's a person's name and then their birth date, the year, and maybe the specific day. And then there's a dash and then there's the death date when they passed on. And the poem was about the dash in between the birth and the death and how important that dash is and how that dash determines the kind of people we are and whether we will be forgiven or not because of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross, the atonement that one of the songs talked about. The dash. How's our dash? <laughs> between our birth and our leaving this world? Are we making the most of it? Is it given to God? Is it according to his will? Is it lived in faith and and love? What is that dash going to be like when we leave this world? Shortness of life. What we should say, if God is willing, so it goes on to that in verse 15, Back in James 4, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if He wants it, if He chooses it, we shall live and do this or that. Years ago, maybe some still do it today, people would write in their letters when they were writing to somebody at the end, D, period, V, period. And many of them knew what that meant at that time. It's from the Latin, Deo Volente, which means God willing. Deo, God, volente, willing. In other words, we're going to do this or that, God willing. It's up to him. So that's the right kind of attitude. That's the attitude it tells us here in verse 15 that we should have. You know, as you think about the opposite attitude, you might think of a vivid story that Jesus told the disciples and and us therefore. I think I first heard it when I was in a Catholic military school when I was in second grade. I attended one in Anaheim called St. Catherine's when I was second grade and, and part of my third grade. I think I heard about this story that Jesus told. Go with me if you would to Luke chapter 12. And it was kind of scary for a six- or seven-year-old boy to hear about this. In fact, years later, I had one of our members. He had been the CHP captain up in Placerville. His name was Dub Kramer. He told me once how that when he was little, maybe 10 years old, he learned that he would have to die someday and how upsetting that was to him. Well, this was a bit upsetting to me, too, to hear this thing. Back in Luke chapter 12, we begin in verse 16. You probably heard this, what Jesus said. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man produced plentifully. He had a great crop. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? "'because I have no room where to put my fruits. "'Where can I put my harvest? "'And he said, "'This is what I'll do. "'I'll pull down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. "'And there I'll put all my fruits and all my goods. "'I'll put all my wealth, all this harvest. "'And I will say to my soul, "'Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years.' take your ease eat drink and be merry but god said to him fool this night your soul shall be required of you and then who's going to own those things that you provided so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward god so here's a man He wasn't saying God willing or even thinking along that line. He was just thinking, I'm going to do this. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to be happy for years. I've got a lot of money, as it were. I've got a lot of goods. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's going to be my philosophy. God had a different idea. He says, you're a fool. You're going to die tonight. Then who's going to own all that stuff that you've accumulated? And so it's important to realize that there's not only the beginning, but there's the end when we leave this world. Now, for a Christian, we know instead of dying, if Jesus comes back, he takes us out. It's called the rapture. We're to be with him forever. He's the king. And so we as Christians look forward to that coming, but we realize if his coming is delayed that people might change and become Christians as we see in 2 Peter chapter 3 if his coming is delayed then we're going to end up dying but in either case we're going to stand before the Lord and we need to be ready and we need to have the attitude Deo Volente, God willing with our lives now we go on then back to James 4, 16 and 17. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is bad, evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Usually we think of sins of commission. That is, God says, don't do this, and we do it. So, okay, that's a sin of commission. We've gone against what God has told us, against his command. But this is a sin of omission. Something we know we should do, and we don't do it. We've omitted to do what God has told us to do. We've not made use of that dash as we should have, we haven't trusted him and followed him and worked for him. I'd like to close by having you go back to the book of Matthew, Matthew 25. We find beginning in verse 14, a very vivid description here of the one who commits the sin of omission, who doesn't do what he or she knows God wants him to do. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling into a distant country. And he calls his own servants and he turns over to them his goods. And to one he gave five talents. Now you might think with that old translation that this means abilities, but it's talking about money a talent was a certain weight, in this case, of silver. A talent, a weight of silver. In other words, he gave him a certain amount of money. So he got these five talents, this certain amount of money, and to another one he gave two talents. In another story he tells, uh, says, according to their ability. So I think that was at play here, too. So... One, he gave more money. Another, he gave quite a bit of money, but not as much, probably depending on their capabilities. And to one other one, he gave one talent. He gave least, but perhaps he just wasn't as capable. To every man, well, here it says it, to every man according to his several individual ability. And right away, he took his trip Then he who had received the five talents who got the most money, say maybe $50,000, he went and he traded with the same, with the $50,000, and he made another five talents. He had a 100% increase. He worked hard. He used his ability, his strength, and so he doubled the investment. Likewise, he who had received two, say he had twenty thousand, he also gained another two, okay, he got another twenty thousand. So both of them gained double. They all worked hard according as they were able and according to their abilities. But he who had received one, say ten thousand dollars, he went, and what did he do with it? Did he invest it? Did he? Start a business and and make a bunch of money so he could return to the owner, the master a good profit that you see why he entrusted them with this money with these talents, that they might work with that capital and gain more. That was the object. but he who had received he went and he digged in the ground, and what'd he do? He said he hid his lord's money. <laughs> By the way, it's called money at this point. So he was a lazy guy. And instead of investing and making use of it and working hard, he just dug a hole in the ground and buried it there to keep it safe. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants comes and he reckons with them. He holds them to account here. And so he who had received the five talents, say 50,000, he came and he brought another five talents, another 50,000. Now he had 100,000. Lord, you delivered to me, he said, five talents. Look, I have gained in addition to them five more talents. His Lord said to him, and you've heard this before, haven't you? Well done, good and faithful servant. We want to hear that when we complete our dash, don't we? Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. What a beautiful thought. May we look forward to hearing the Lord say that to us because we trusted and loved him and served him, worked for him, He also who had received two talents came and he said, Lord, you turned over to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Interesting, he says same thing to both of them. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Be nice if the story stopped there, but it didn't. Then he who had received the one talent came, the guy that got the 10,000. He came and he said, Lord, I knew you that you are a hard man, a difficult person, reaping, harvesting, as it were, where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered. And I was scared. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. I took that 10,000 and I buried it safely. Look, here you have what is yours. (laughs) His Lord answered and he said to him, Wicked and lazy servant. (laughs) See, that's what the real situation was. He was bad and he was lazy. You knew that I reap, I harvest where I did not scatter and I gather where I have not strewed. Therefore, you should have put my money to the exchangers. In other words, invested it, put it in the bank at least. And then at my coming, I should have received my own back along with interest, along with usury. So the least you could have done, instead of burying it, where it doesn't gain anything, you could have at least invested in a CD and got something back from it. Now, I realize today CDs are (laughs) almost worthless, but there was a time, and maybe there'll be a future time, where they are worth something. Interest rates will go back, maybe. But at any rate, you see what the servant did. An excuse for his laziness was to bury it (laughs) and think that that would get him a passing grade. Well, it didn't. Therefore, take from him the talent, the 10,000, which And give it to him who has ten talents. (laughs) Give it to the first guy that had been so faithful. Because to everyone who has shall be given. And he shall have abundance. But from him who does not have shall be taken away even what he does have. (laughs) And then these scary words. And throw the unprofitable servant into outer darkness there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you gather this guy didn't have faith. This guy was lazy and bad. So what do we gather from this parable? (laughs) Better make use of what God has given us, right? Better live for Jesus and do the things that count, the things that are right and good and uplifting and profitable. Not in participating in the sin of omission, (laughs) but being all out for Jesus. That's what he calls us to be, totally devoted to him. Well, I hope to see you next Sunday, and I hope that all of you will be able to stay for the Thanksgiving potluck that immediately follows. We thank Bob for doing the cooking of the turkey and others for bringing various parts of the meal. So again, you're all invited, whether you brought something or not. We hope you'll all be able to stay. May we have a prayer of dedication. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your forgiveness. We thank you for your complete forgiveness. You cleanse us from all sin as we repent and put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we confess, we acknowledge our situation. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord, who points out the right way in which we should walk, who helps us every day. Help us, Lord, to commit our ways to you for each day, Help us not take a vacation from being a Christian and a follower of Jesus. We thank you for that wonderful word. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Thank you for the positiveness of Christianity and the promises of the Lord Jesus. Now we would commit ourselves anew and afresh to you. Thank you, Lord. As the scripture says, and as we're called to on thanksgiving to do, may we abound in thanksgiving. How much you've given us, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' wonderful name we ask, amen.